night. Again, we'll be reading from First Samuel chapter 8, verses 4, through chapter 9, verse 2. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, this will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nolan. So for those of you who are new, we are going through First and Second Samuel this spring. And so more than one of you last week uh, came up to me and you asked me, so where's David? Like, when are we going to get to David? Because, the, you know, the slide says the gospel in the life of David. So the short answer is in two weeks. Okay, so in two weeks, we're going to see David. And, but the longer answer is context matters. Okay, so like if you're reading Harry Potter, can you start with book four of Harry Potter? Yeah, you could. But you're going to have much more robust understanding of the circumstances, the situations, the characters if you start in book one, right? And so similarly, similarly with David, uh, we're going to have a very flat view of who David is. And, you know, so who's Samuel? Who's Saul? Uh, why does kingship all of a sudden appear in Israel? Why is there a need to be a king? If we don't actually start a little bit earlier and, you know, look at the context leading up to it. So that's why we've been looking at a few verses or a few chapters in Samuel leading up to David. So 
I do apologize if the slide has misled you guys. Um, the original slide said First and Second Samuel, Gospel and Life of David, but we wanted to clean it up. So anyway, all that to say, because I know you guys are DMV people, in two weeks we can all have cognitive rest knowing that the name in the text matches the name in the slide, okay? <laughs> so like, all right, all right, so hopefully we're good there now. So um, today marks a transition in Samuel, and so chapters 1 through 7, basically what happens is it contrasts the fall of Eli with the rise of Samuel, okay, as representatives for God people, God's people. So you can think about kind of like an X, you have Eli up here, Samuel down here, and you have, I'm going to try to do this backwards, right, yeah, but you have the fall of Eli and the rise of Samuel, right, so that's, that's the first seven chapters. Now beginning in chapter 8, throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, what we're going to see is Saul, and David, and we're going to see the fall of King Saul and the rise of King David. Because that makes sense. Hopefully that helps to get like a bird's eye view of where, where we are and where we're going in Samuel. And so today is when we first start to see David kind of like peeking around the corner. Because here is what, here's where we see Israel uh, demand a king. And that's what's ultimately going to lead to David being anointed as, as the king uh, that, that Israel needs. And so... Um, but what's interesting in this passage is God has a problem with Israel's request. So you can see, like, God takes issue with the fact that Israel is demanding a king. So here's how we're going to walk through this passage. I will just go, like, right through the text, and we'll see these three things. So first we'll see what is wrong with Israel's request for a king. What's wrong with it? Second, we'll look at what's God's response to their request for a king. And then number three, how should we respond to God's response? Is what's wrong with Israel's request for a king? Uh, how does God respond to their request? And then number three, how should we respond to God's response uh, to their demand for a king? Okay, so first, number one, uh, what's wrong with Israel's request for a king? So how it starts off is the elders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, if they had stopped there, they would have been fine because it's true Samuel's sons didn't walk in God's ways. And they say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So Samuel prays to the Lord, and then the Lord says, okay, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then later on, what we're going to see is God warns Israel that you shouldn't ask for a king. So here's what might frame kind of like what's going on from the, from the Israelites' perspective. So me personally, I, I love coffee. Okay, I love coffee. I love the process of making coffee. And so what I do, you know, most mornings when I make coffee is I don't just fire up a Keurig. No. Okay, so I have a scale so I can measure the weight of ratio of the water to the coffee grounds. I have a hand grinder so that I have uniformity in the coarseness of the beans that are ground. I have a temperature-controlled kettle so I can get the temperature of the water, okay, the right temperature for brewing. This was, these were mainly gifts to me, by the way, from people who love me very much. <laughs> um, and then I also use a timer so that I can time, you know, so I make sure I'm not brewing it too fast or too slow. Now, to me, that seems very normal. And in fact, for a lot of people in places like Arlington and Richmond, that doesn't seem that weird. But sometimes people come over and they just ask for a cup of coffee. Like this happened, my dad came over a couple months ago. He said, hey, Steve, you know, I don't normally have coffee. Can you make me a cup? And 20 minutes later, he was like, geez, if I had known that you were going to turn the kitchen to a chem lab <laughs> and it was going to take 20 minutes to get a cup of coffee, like I wouldn't have asked for one. Like, what, what's the deal? And I was thinking about it, though, and so, yes, I do, I do like the taste of coffee. What I did tell him is perfection takes time, you know, so um, I do it because I love coffee, but I was thinking about it more, and I think one of the reasons why, because Kelsey gets on me for it as well, but I think, like, one of the reasons why I like doing it is because so much of my life as a, you know, as a 
shepherd, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, just as a person, so often feels like I don't have any control like over anything that's going on, which is largely true. So I think like when I can measure things in the morning and know if I put in, you know, X, Y, Z effort, I'm going to get like a great result. It allows me to at least have the illusion of some semblance of control over my life. I think that's why I like to do that. But the point is for the, the Israelites is really, like, it's not that hard to understand where they're coming from when you see that all they're really trying to do is to maintain some sense of control over their life. Because at this stage in Israel's history, they don't have any unified structure. Uh, they're existing as a, you know, essentially a loose confederation of tribes. There's fighting within, there's fighting without. And then, so what you see is in chapter 4, which we looked at last week, they, they try to manipulate God, okay? So now they take this desire to, to control and, you know, go, you know, horribly with it. So first they try to manipulate God using furniture. Okay, we saw that last week when they tried to use the Ark of the Covenant. And then what happens in chapter 7, which we didn't read, but what happens is Samuel is raised up as a leader, and he has a close relationship with God. And what Samuel does is he prays to the Lord and brings Israel victory uh, with their enemies. He gives them peace. And so what the Israelites see is they're like, hmm, this guy Samuel is very useful. They kind of viewed him a little bit like, you know, you'd view a a genie in a lamp. So it's like Samuel's the, the lamp who can control the genie who's God. So they're looking to Samuel as a way to manipulate God. Now in chapter 8, they see that Samuel's getting old and he's going to die. And so the Israelites are thinking like, oh my gosh, we're going to lose Samuel. We're going to lose control. I mean, imagine if you, imagine say like you just found out you lost your job or you just received a, a diagnosis that's going to change your life forever or you just lost a relationship that was really precious to you. Like you feel a loss of control, right? And so that's what's going on with Israel. And so... They, they ask, okay, so we want a king. And the problem isn't that they ask for a king. And we know this because, so in Genesis 17, for example, God tells Abraham, through your lineage, kings are going to come through you. And then in Deuteronomy 17, God tells the Israelites, when you get to the land that I'm going to show you, and you appoint for yourself a king, and he tells them the type of king that they should look for. So the issue isn't that they want a king. So what's the issue? The key is the qualifier that the Israelites ask for. What do they say? They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's what's key. Because when they say, we want a king like the nations, what they're saying is, we want a king who's similar to the other kings of the nations. And when you, looked at, when you look at ancient Near Eastern culture, the, the kings had a very particular relationship with the gods. And so... While the gods would do many things, while the kings would do many things for the gods, the gods were also dependent on the kings because ancient Near Eastern king, uh, gods, they were essentially like humans, just a lot more powerful. And what the gods were like is, you, you could, one way to think about them is they were like very needy boyfriends or very needy girlfriends. It's like they, they needed attention. They needed worship. They needed affection. They needed obedience. And so the gods would look to the kings, you know, to organize these cultic practices and sacrifices so that, you know, everybody in, in their tribe would look to the gods so the god could feel good about themselves, essentially. Now, because the god was, in, was to a great degree dependent on the king, the king also could call in favors to the gods, because the kings were doing things for the gods. And so what, what the kings would do is they would often call on their gods to do things for them. You know, one of, one of which being like leading them into battle to give them victory. 
And so in essence, what the Israelites are, are saying, when they say we want a king like the nations, what they're saying is we want a God like the nations. Does that make sense? Like we want a God who can be manipulated. We want a God who we can control. We don't want a king who submits to God and who points us to our need for repentance and our need to follow God. We want, we want a king who can manipulate God to do what we want. So that's the problem with their request. Okay? They, they want a king so they can control God. And that, that's what God takes issue with. And so just a, just a brief reflection as we move on to, okay, so how does God, God's responses? Just think about your own life, and is there any area in your current life where you're in a particular situation, and in essence what you're doing is rather than going to God and saying, God, I don't know what to do, I need to wait on you, will you please show me how to trust in you, how to rely on you, how to follow you? Instead of doing that, are you basically prescribing to God what he needs to do for you? Are you sent, do you already have a plan and basically you're just waiting for God to put his benediction on it? Or are you going to him and saying, here's what I think I need to do, but maybe my problem isn't so much mechanical or physical, but maybe my issue is spiritual. Like, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to wait on you? Where do I need to rely on you? Or are you basically like the Israelites saying, how can I manipulate God into just getting on board with my plan for my life. Okay, so that, that's God's issue with, with Israel's request for a king. So next we'll look at how does he, how does he respond uh, to their request? And what he does is he tells Samuel in verse 7, okay, obey the voice of the people and what they say, for they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. And then what he says in verse 9 is, okay, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So what God's doing basically is a form of discipline. So, because it looks like he's just kind of like so fed up, he's just kind of giving them over to themselves. In, in a sense, yeah, but have you ever known somebody, or maybe you're even in a relationship with somebody like this now, where like you try so many times to correct them, or you try so many times to, to warn them of a lifestyle choice they're making and they're not listening and so often it gets to a point where you just have to let them do it (laughs) you just have to let them do it and for them to learn on their own the consequences of what's going to happen if they go through with what they want to do and so that that's what God's doing he's saying okay I can't persuade you that this is a bad idea so I'm just gonna let you do it and teach you a very painful object lesson so that's that's what he's doing and then so what does God say he says okay but Warn them of the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And here's, here's what's key. Okay, so anytime you see repetition in scripture, okay, that's usually something you should pay attention to. So what does God say in verse 11? Like, what's the word that he repeats over and over? You probably noticed it during the scripture reading. Verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your fox. Okay, he will take, he will take, he will take. And then, this is great rhetoric, and then at the end of verse 17, and you shall be his slaves. Okay, so this is meant to be a trigger word for the Israelites to make them flash back to Egypt 
when they were under the boot of Pharaoh, right, being beaten, oppressed, before God liberated them. So what, what God's saying is, this, you, you appoint a king who's like the nations, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, and you're going to end up being his slaves. And this happens. Okay, it, it plays out. So it happens with Saul, okay, very clearly. And it happens with David. So David's a great king, but even he ends up, we'll see this, okay, he ends up being very selfish. Um, even where you see in verse 11, for example, so the king will, will take your sons and have them run before his chariot. So what, what he means there is often a king, you know, he would take men and then he'd put them in front of the chariots in battle so they would run and be the, the first people to die so that they could, you know, so, so the horses and chariots wouldn't be overthrown as quickly, which were more expensive and more resourceful. And, I mean, David does this with Uriah, right, the husband of a woman he takes to sleep with. He puts Uriah in the front of the line so that he's killed. Okay, so even King David does this. Solomon does it, and his sons do it. This is where you really see this play out, where they place a very heavy burden and yoke on the people. So God's saying, he's, you, would, you would rather have a human king who takes than me, your divine king, who does nothing but give. Like, that's why he brings up um, the Exodus in, in verse 8. He says, remember from the day I, I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day. Like, no matter how many times Israel ran from me, rejected me, I, I rescued them, I redeemed them, I gave them my law, which was, which was for their flourishing. I continue to dwell with them. Like, I do nothing but give and give and give. But they would rather have a human king who takes. And so... This is, this is the main idea of this passage, is that God is a God who gives. God is a gracious, personal, and giving God. But yet the, the oldest lie in the book is that we believe God is a taker and not a giver. I mean, just like, be honest with yourself. Like, when you think about your prayer life, when you think about just as you wake up, as you go about your day to day, in your heart of hearts, is there a part of you that thinks, oh, God, yeah, he doesn't really care about my joy. Or he, he wants to take all these things from me. As opposed to he is only a God who gives. And you, you see this lie go all the way back to Genesis 2. So in Genesis 2 is where God makes Adam and Eve and then he puts them in the garden. And so in Genesis 2 is where God gives the, the commands pertaining to the trees. And do you guys know what the first command was that God gave Adam and Eve? Okay, so... Um, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that wasn't the first command he gave. <laughs> or it was the first thing God said. He said, you may eat of any tree in the garden. I've given you all of this abundance and choice to enjoy. And then he follows it up with just, but just, just that one tree. And what did Adam and Eve focus on? They focused on the one thing God said that they couldn't have. And they took it. Because the lie of the serpent was God's trying to keep you down. And that lie has passed into the DNA of the human race. I mean, when most of us think back to that passage, right, that's usually the thing we think about, is God saying, don't eat of the tree. His, his first command was for abundance. And so just, do you, do you view God as a taker or, or as a giver? And see, God tells the Israelites, okay, if you appoint a king, he's going to make you his slaves. Okay, so you may say, okay, well, you know, I'm not in Israel. I'm not, well, I don't know, a lot of people in this country are looking for a king of sorts to bring, you know, the, the wholeness and flourishing they need. But 
as David Foster Wallace put it in his address to Kenyon College uh, a while ago, he wasn't a Christian, uh, but one of the things he said was, he says, in the day-to-day trenches of ordinary life, there is no such thing as atheism. And this guy, I believe, he, he was a professing atheist. But he said, when you really look at how we live, there's no such thing as atheism. And what he went on to say was, because everybody worships. And if you don't worship someone like the God of the Bible, you are going to worship something of this world. And whatever you worship, whatever you crown as king, is going to eat you alive, is the phrase that he used. And they went on to say, like, if you worship power, you're always going to feel weak and afraid and you're never going to have enough. If you worship beauty, you're going to spend your whole life feeling ugly and you'll die a thousand deaths before you actually die. If, if you worship your intellect, you'll always feel like a fraud, always feel like you're going to be found out. He was, I mean, this man, was, he was a cultural prophet. He was, he was spot on. I mean, we have so many people in this nation who say, okay, I'm not very religious, but when you look at their lives... They're so enslaved. Like I, was just, I was just reading an article in, in the New Yorker. It was written in December. And it was called The Age of the Instagram Face. And what the author uh, talked about is, is um, she, her name's Gia and Gia Tolentino. And uh, she picked up on this idea that um, 95% of the most followed Instagram accounts use what's called Facetune, which is an app where you can use, basically you take a selfie and then you airbrush yourself to make yourself look more beautiful. And what she did is she went out to um, Los Angeles and she just visited a number of uh, plastic surgeons. And the plastic surgeons were telling her, I mean, we have like young girls coming into our clinics all the time with like, you know, Instagram profiles put up on their phones, you know, people like Kim Kardashian, Kylie Jenner, and saying like, I, I need to look like this. And in the comment sections, you'll see like little girls asking like, okay, how, how young do, do, you, do you do these procedures for? Because unless I look like that, I'm not, I'm, I'm not beautiful. I, I can't be pretty. And it, it's so sad. This, this is what happens when you, when you worship something outside of the God of the Bible. It will always take and take and take and take. And our nation needs to know about the one king who does nothing but give and who actually delivers on his promises. And so is, is God the, the one that you look to? Or have you crowned something else in your life where in practice you say, okay, unless I have this relationship or unless this relationship turns into the thing I want it to or unless this happens in, in my career, unless this happens you know, with where I can live or a certain lifestyle, I can't, okay, God's okay. But I can't really be happy because whatever you worship outside of God, it, it will take and take and take. And so that's, that's how God responds with a very a, a sober warning. And so how should, how should we respond, okay, to, um, knowing that God is a God who, who gives? Right? I mean, because he is a God who gives, right? It may not be the thing that you, that you think that you need. What does he give you? He gives you an identity, a sense of self, and a sense of worth that's not based on your performance or your love for God, but based on Jesus' performance and God's love for you. God gives you forgiveness of sins. He gives you reconciliation with himself. And most of all, God gives you himself. There is nothing more you can give somebody than the gift of yourself. Okay, where you so bind yourself to somebody else, in a sense where your happiness is tied to their happiness, and where you are left vulnerable because you've bound yourself to them. And that's exactly what God did. 
He so gives himself to us that he ended up needing to give his very life for us so that we can be reconciled to him. He does nothing but give and give and give. So how should we, how should we live in, in light of this fact? And so let's just talk about a couple things um, horizontally and one thing vertically with how this changes uh, when we know we are in relationship with a God who gives instead of takes. And so first, just a couple things to think about horizontally, okay, with our horizontal relationships. So when you look at this passage, I mean, God is, he's, he's so gracious. Like already up until this point, Israel has been obnoxious. But then now they're, they're rejecting God again, and God says, okay, give him a king, but God is going to stick with Israel. He still sticks with Israel, and God sticks with you and me, okay, amid all of our contradictions, all of our hypocrisies. And so just one application here is, given that you're in relationship with a God who continues to be there with you, even when you are extremely difficult, I'm sure there's at least one person in your life right now who's just very difficult to love. Okay, and the call of the scriptures is to, just as God has first stuck with you and given to you, so we are also called to stick with other people who make poor decisions, okay, who, who hurt us. And I'm not talking about abuse, okay, so just be very clear there. If somebody is abusing you, it's not loving to stay in the relationship, okay? It's not loving to anybody else who they, might, who they may potentially harm, okay? So just not talking about abuse, but, you know, just through, you know, people may be saying unthoughtful things toward you, um, hurting you in some way, you know, in your relationship. Who is a difficult person that you know right now that God may be calling you to just stick with them, okay? Even if it seems like they're not listening to you, Okay, they irritate you. Just to be there with them, and maybe you can't really give them advice any longer because they won't listen, but you just need to stick with them. And however you can, just point them to Christ, give them your presence. Okay, in the church, outside the church. I was, that was one thing I was just personally very convicted. I was convicted by is, yeah, just how I tend to even implicitly start to distance myself from those who I feel like don't, you know, reciprocate the love that I give. So that's one. Uh, and then I'll give another one. And, and I just, I felt like we needed to talk about this because we haven't talked about it uh, in a while. And I think one of the biggest areas where we as a church have, and just Christians in general in America have bought the lie that God takes more than he gives is in the realm of sexuality, if, if, if I'm being honest. And so I think where the church has failed a lot uh, in the past is with people in the LGBTQ community being way too abrasive and harsh. And so just if you're here and um, you are in the LGBTQ community um, or you consider yourself having you know, different sexual orientation or gender identification, just first, I'm so sorry I'm so sorry for, for how Christians may have treated you, either in the ways they've spoken about you or spoken to you. Um, so I just want to be super clear there. Um, now, second, to you guys who, who, who follow Jesus, like what I'm getting at is the more people I talk to, I've realized that now where we are, I think, failing people in the LGBTQ community is we're so afraid to share Jesus with them because what we believe deep down is if we share Jesus Christ, we're ultimately inviting them into a life of restriction. Okay, because we, we've bought the lie of culture, which says that in order to be a fully human being, 
a fully human being, you need to express yourself sexually. It's an incredible lie in our culture right now. And that, that challenges everybody. Okay, no matter, okay, Jesus challenges everybody in the realm of, of sexuality. Christians believe that. Non-Christians believe that. And so just don't even take, well, first take scripture's word for it, okay? But don't even take my word for it. Read people like Jackie Hill Perry, okay? She's a well-known singer-songwriter, uh, same-sex attracted. Read people like Rebecca McLaughlin and Sam Albury. Both, they both graduated from Oxford. Uh, they're same-sex attracted Christians. And they've done so much um, talking with people um, who are gay, who consider themselves bi. And one of the things they, they've helped people, so many people find freedom in is the, the way you are fully human is not by expressing yourself sexually. Okay? The way you become fully human is by being united with the one who gave everything for you, who died for you and invites you into nothing but flourishing. And so I just want to lovingly encourage slash challenge you guys who do follow Jesus, just consider where am I not sharing the gospel message? Because I know in this cultural moment... Okay, this is something where people just view it as very offensive. Okay, I know some of you may feel like you lack the vocabulary to talk about these things. That's, you know, me and other people in the church will gladly help you with this. Um, but I just, I think there's an area where we as a church can, can really be a light to our nation and how we love people outside the church and invite them in to follow Jesus, knowing that we're inviting them into a life of flourishing and not a life of restriction. Okay, so that's just horizontally some things to think about um, and to practice. And then last, how does this change our life vertically and how we live? And when you look at Saul, okay, so in verse 9, you see the type of king uh, that, that was chosen. And it says, so his name was Saul, chapter 9, verse 2. How is, how is he described? A handsome young man. There was, not a, there was not a man among the people more handsome than he. Okay, so he's really handsome, apparently. Uh, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And then it also says in verse 1 that he was a man of wealth. Okay, and so what we're going to see moving forward is Saul is the, the classic example of a human being, of a leader, who finds their strength in the externals. Okay, right? He's, he's good-looking. He's super tall. He's wealthy. And the downfall of Saul takes place because ultimately he's a king who relies on himself. Whereas David, okay, he's far from perfect, but David, what makes David a man after God's own heart is at the end of the day, David relies on, on God's strength, not his own strength. And he, like, what does David say when he goes out to fight Goliath? Does he say, I'm so skilled with a slingshot? No, he says, the Lord will deliver me. While Saul's trying to like put a bunch of armor on him, <laughs> yeah, because Saul relies on his strength and the strength of man, David relies on, on God's strength. And David, he's not perfect, but who he's meant to point us to is who? King Jesus. And so when you think about King Jesus, okay, go back and read that passage again where God describes what a human king will do. But now think about it in terms of King Jesus, Okay, so how does that list of the human king will take and take and take change when we apply it to the king we need, King Jesus? He will give. Right? He will give up his glory 
to become human and ordinary. And he will give up his invulnerability to become vulnerable. He will give all of his will on earth to obey the Father to cover you where you fail. He will give up his honor as he's stripped and slapped and beaten and thrown upon a cross. He will give his very life in the relationship he's known with God the Father for all eternity, for you. He will give his spirit to you when he ascends to the right hand of the Father to breathe life into your dead heart. And he will continue to give his prayers for you as he's interceding for you right now. And he will give all of his resources and wisdom to persevere you all the way into the end and to glory. He will give, he will give, he will give, he will give. And so here's, here's the point. Can we look at Saul, a man who ultimately depends on himself? The, the final call of this, this passage is to, here's really, I think at the end of the day, all I hope you guys get from this. So here, here at Doxology, we place a lot of emphasis on our life, like how we live and our obedience, because Jesus doesn't call us to an empty faith. Okay, he wants us to be so changed by what he's done that we, we live differently, okay, and we follow him. However, I hope you all never hear from me, like at the essence of me or anyone who preaches here, I hope that the main thing that you hear in your community groups and your discipleship groups is not you have to be a good person. Okay, what, I, what I hope you hear in this church is I hope you just gaze at Jesus. The king who gives and gives and gives. I hope you surrender to Jesus. I hope you follow Jesus. I hope you treasure Jesus. Because Jesus isn't looking for good people. Okay, he's looking for very broken, flawed people who he makes new. And then through very just small, <laughs> tiny steps of obedience and discipline, he turns you day by day into somebody who reflects his image. And so I hope you, like, as you, as you go out, it's not about, okay, I need to, like, do all these things to do things for Jesus, but it's just gazing at Christ, surrendering to Christ, following Christ. Okay, when you think about living a life, giving to others, okay, you do that not by, like, you know, um, doubling up on your willpower, but looking at Jesus, okay? How can I give to this person who's being difficult? I look at Jesus. How can I share the gospel with somebody I'm afraid to share the gospel with? I look to Jesus. Okay, all of our life needs to be gazing at Jesus, the great king who gives. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much that you are a God who gives. And I pray for us that we will not believe the lie that you take more than you give, uh, but we will see the beauty of you most clearly displayed in the face of Jesus Christ and be changed anew by how much you, you give to us, everything from your life to giving us your spirit uh, to giving us the community of believers that we get to do life together with. And I pray that we will be a community who live lives of not taking from other people, uh, but live lives of giving and generosity as you've uh, first given to us. Uh, thank you so much for being patient with us as we do fail again and again and again and make us uh, a community who reflects you in your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.